welcome to the Redeemer 20 Sermon Podcast, where our goal is to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission. My name is Luke Dirks, and I'm your host, and I'm also privileged to lead the 20s ministry at Redeemer Church in beautiful Rockford, Illinois. The sermon you are about to hear was preached at our Thursday night gathering at 7 p.m. We hope you enjoy this, and we hope you also join us at a future Thursday. Well, welcome to 20s. My name is not Luke Dirks. My name is Gabe Whitaker. It is a pleasure to be here. That's my old tenant right there. So thankful to be here. Uh, my wife, Emma, and I serve in the youth ministry, and we've loved being there for the last five years and are super grateful for this church as a whole. And it's an amazing thing that there's back-to-back nights of ministry at Redeemer Church where young people are hearing God's word preached, declared unapologetically. Um, I'm so thankful to be a part of that. So a little bit about me. Um, my name's Gabe. I like playing disc golf. I like playing spike ball. Uh, I work at an artificial turf company. It's great. It's called Forever Lawn. Yeah. Roman, that's right, that's right. Um, I'm married two and a half years to my wife, Emma. Yeah, she's amazing. She's got lots of skills and talents and hobbies. She's an excellent gardener. She can make anything grow. If you have dying plants, give them to Emma. She will make them grow somehow. Um, And one of the things that she likes to do is she likes to redo furniture. Just occasionally, it's a side thing. Uh, So perhaps she might have a better understanding of this, but I'm going to give it my best shot based on what I have knowledge of. So imagine we have a beautiful hardwood dresser. It's got dovetail joints. It's got perfect grain. It's all pristine, no defects. This thing's rock solid. This is an heirloom piece. It doesn't need any modification. This thing is good as it is. But let's say it gets a new owner who doesn't like the old dresser. They don't like the old mahogany tone. They're into the newer, lighter colors or whatever. So they add a layer of veneer. They take some glue. They slap gobs of glue on top of this dresser. They lay down a thick sheet of veneer because they want to change the color. They want to modify it so it fits their house a little bit better. Soon enough, this owner grows tired of it, and they pass it to another owner who does the same thing. They don't like the color, so they dip more gobs of glue on the dresser. They add another layer of veneer, and on and on it goes. This happens three or four more times, and very quickly, our beautiful hardwood dresser looks like a piece of cheap junk. The beauty within is shrouded in many thick layers of garbage, and all of the modifications actually detract from the original design. So this is similar to what the religious leaders were doing, the scribes and Pharisees, that they had done with God's wonderful law. And that's what we're going to be looking at tonight in chapter 5 of the book of Matthew, the first book of the New Testament. If you have a Bible, you can turn there. The Pharisees were teaching as doctrines of God the commandments of men. That's what Jesus says in Matthew 15. Instead of upholding God's laws given, their attempts to change or tweak or modify this law were not at all intimidating, imitating the spirit that God had when he gave the nation of Israel the law. And their work of pollution had great influence on the people that Jesus is speaking to in our passage tonight. And this is why Jesus addresses it head-on in the beginning of Matthew chapter 5. And I'm going to turn there as well. Maybe you're here for the first time or first time in a while. I was here 
I think in November, I got to preach 20s, it was amazing, but there's like at least 30 new faces I've never seen before in my life. So praise God that you're here. You've been here much longer than I have, so I'm not, I'm not taking any credit, but glad to see you. But here is our context for our passage tonight. Jesus is addressing a large crowd of people. There's religious leaders, Pharisees, uh, is a term that's often referred to them as. It's one of the people groups. There's also other Jesus' disciples, and then with that, there's just groups of people who are kind of semi-interested in what this new rabbi, Jesus, has to say. But here is the context. Jesus is the Son of God. He is called out of Egypt, which is in Matthew chapter 2, verse 15. He was hidden from Herod. He passed through the waters of his baptism in Matthew chapter 3. He was tested in the wilderness in Matthew chapter 4. And now, in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is declaring God's law on a mountaintop. This is an interesting pattern. It's one that perfectly mimics the Old Testament, and it's designed this way to show that God's law is consistent throughout the entire Bible. It's not Old Testament and then a totally new book, New Testament. God's law is consistent because the giver of the law is consistent. God is unchanging. This is not new theology. God brought his people through this pattern in the Old Testament, and now Jesus, the true and better Israel, is going to live it perfectly. He's going to perform what the nation could not do. Christ did not come to modify or change or alter the original design of God's law. He came with the purpose of displaying the magnificence that already was within the law because it was given by a magnificent God. Instead of slapping a layer of veneer to cover the dresser, Christ is the butcher block conditioner that reveals the shine in the dresser already. Tonight we'll be looking at portion of the Sermon on the Mount, one of Jesus' most famous addresses. And Jesus here confronts people on their misunderstanding of murder. He illuminates their minds to see the amazing depths of God's word. So we're going to begin in Matthew chapter 5, verse 21. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, what do you do? Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift to God. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. This is God's word. My title tonight, if you're taking notes, is Heart Murder. Heart Murder. And we're going to be unpacking what Jesus is communicating in this passage on the subject of anger. My first point, number one, the extent of anger. The extent of anger. Look closely at the words that Jesus uses to begin this section in verse 21. He says, you have heard that it was said. You have heard that it was said. These words give us a clue about the source of these words that have been said. 
If you flip back one page to Matthew chapter 4, you can see it in verse 4. Jesus is rebuffing Satan's temptation, actually, in this passage. And what does Jesus say? It is written. And then in verse 6, he says again, it is written. And in verse 7, he says again, it is written. And in verse 10, he says, for it is written. Jesus, following each of these statements of it is written, uses a direct quote from Scripture. So we got a clue because in this passage, in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, it is said, not it is written. And that's for us to know and understand that this is not what God was originally intending in what has been said. Jesus is saying, this is not what God said, but it is how you hear it. This is not the original design, but it is how it is now interpreted. So what has been said? Well, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. God's command to this people of Israel was far beyond the interpretation that the Pharisees had, far beyond the interpretation that the people had. And it was well away from what God's original intent was. And I want to show that to you tonight. I want you to see that for yourself as you read God's word because it is beautiful. And some of us can get scared of reading about the Old Testament and reading the law and trying to understand that, and it can be confusing. God's spirit helps. (laughs) It's impossible to interpret scripture without the spirit of God. But it is a joy, and I hope you get that, and I hope you see that. And it is a joy for Jesus to explain it. So that's what we're going to study tonight. When God gave this command to not murder in Exodus chapter 20, God's intention was not just saying, don't kill people. It wasn't just saying, don't end lives. But instead, there was a full range of command within this one little phrase. Not only were you not to kill, but you were also to preserve life. So there's like, there's a sin of committing, of commission, and then there's a sin of omission. So if you fail to preserve life, you're just as guilty of not murdering as if you actually kill someone. Pastor John preached a great sermon on this a few weeks ago. If you want to know more on, in depth on this, I really encourage you to listen to it out of Exodus 20. And the point that we want to get at is that the command that has been propped up through the generations did not demonstrate what God desired. It wasn't his heart. And this is why Jesus outlines that the true definition shouldn't just be physical murder. It should be the sin that leads to physical murder that begins in the heart. So, what is this anger that Christ prohibits? What is this anger that Jesus tells us is wrong and sinful? Is there any anger that he doesn't prohibit? Is any anger good? Well, it's true that not all anger is is necessarily bad, and Jesus expressed this in Matthew 21. You've probably heard the story. Jesus comes into the temple. All these people are polluting the temple by selling stuff, and Jesus says, you've made my house, the Lord's house, into a den of robbers, a den of thieves. So, Jesus shows us that not all anger is bad. But how do we know? How do we know if our anger is bad? Because this is a question we find ourselves. You know, you hear the message, okay, not all anger is bad. Okay, well, how do I know? How do I identify that? So this is a good question to ask. It's a thought that we should revisit because if we don't, we can very quickly fall into sin. Listen to this quote by a bishop in Geneva 500 years ago. He says this, There never was an angry man that thought his anger unjust. There never was an angry man that thought his anger unjust. When we're in the middle of anger, of rage, it's impossible to see beyond what's going on. 
And without being shaped regularly by God's word and his spirit, we're going to lose sight of this. So in order to identify what unrighteous anger is within our lives, I have a few indicators. I wrote some down. I'm sure there's more. Um, Unrighteous anger, when it is without reason. If you're angry at something that doesn't matter, whether it's no reason at all or just not a good reason, this is an indicator of unrighteous anger. When the anger is not aimed at ultimate good, when the goal of your anger isn't to ultimately bring honor to God, it's probably not good anger. If the end result of your anger means that you assert your dominance or you exact revenge from someone that wronged you, this is not righteous anger. If your anger's eruption exceeds proportions, if you get blown up at the smallest thing, if you see red because that Kia cut you off on the way here to 20s tonight, like, that's not righteous anger. If you are desiring to see the person who wronged you hurt, emotionally or physically, that is not righteous anger. If you would ever look back on a moment where you were angry at one point in your life and realize that it was an overreaction, that's not righteous anger. I pray that these indicators would help you, that they would be helpful in identifying what your anger is really a manifestation of. But what qualifies righteous anger? Here's a helpful definition by a man named John Stott. He's a theologian. He says this, There is such a thing as righteous anger, but it is a hatred for God's enemies, not our enemies. It is entirely free of all spite, of all rancor, bitterness, and all vindictiveness, revenge. And what's the inspiration for this anger? He says this, It is fired only by love for God's honor and glory. That is righteous anger. The right kind of anger is only ever fueled by a love for God and his glory. Why? Because this is the pattern that God sets forth in himself. When he is angry, the term we usually refer to it as is wrathful. It's because people are committing cosmic, cosmic treason against a holy and omnipotent God. His anger has reason. It's aimed at the ultimate good, the reason why everything happens and exists in the universe, which is the glory of God and that being put on display in everything. Here's a part that hugely separates our anger from God's anger. God's anger is measured perfectly. It is in direct proportion to the offense. He does not over-punish. He doesn't over-erupt. This is because God does not react emotionally to our sin like we do to other people. And he never looks back on his eruptions of anger and thinks that was out of control. God's anger is measured. And it is measured in intensity. It is an intense anger that God has. But he acts in accordance with anger's seriousness. Well, how serious is anger? Great question. That is my second point, the seriousness of anger. Number two, the seriousness of anger. If we go back to our text now, looking at verse 22, it says this, But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. I remember, this was probably like eight years ago, I was at this summer camp 
And my brother was my counselor, which was an adventure. It was awesome. It was kind of crazy. Um, but at this stage in life, my brother was kind of in this thing where he would just tell everyone, you idiot. He would, he would call you an idiot. He'd call me an idiot, you know. It is what it is, okay? That's, that's all I'll say about that. But here's the point. A pastor was preaching on this text, and he was preaching out of the New Living Translation, which says something along the lines of, if you say to someone, you idiot, you are liable to the hell of fire. <laughs> and we all just kind of like looked over my brother like, uh, this, this one's for you. This one's for you. Right? And that's, that's not the interpretation that we should have of our passage. But what is Jesus saying here? Well, he's saying that he is, well, he's building off of people's understanding of the law in verse 21. They think that murder is the only thing that makes you liable to judgment. Murder is the only ultimate wrong. And if, as long as you're not murdering someone, then you're fine. Jesus says, no, this is not what it's about. The penalty from God doesn't just come when you commit the outward act. The penalty from God begins, it, it comes when you commit the sin within your heart. The sin, though it's a, a small seed of the ultimate fruit that's seen in murder, Anger should be viewed with the same hatred. When you, within your heart, have hatred towards your brother, it invokes the same penalty from God. If you even start down this path of murder in our hearts, cherishing it for a second, even that sounds crazy to acknowledge, but if you have any desire for it within your heart, you are liable to judgment. That's what Jesus says here. It gets worse as the sin matures. The middle ground between anger in the heart and anger in the actions is anger in the tongue, in the speech. And when you dwell on a thought long enough, it will find its way out of your mouth. In the same way, when you, your anger towards another person lingers, it will bubble up on your tongue. This word here in the text that says, you fool, um, and then earlier says insult, they're specific Greek words. One of them says, it means raka, or it's technically translated as raka, which means you fool. It means you are empty-headed, you are dumb. And more is for insult, which means you are a rebel. Okay, so what Jesus is saying is that if you insult someone's character or you insult their wisdom, their decisions, their intelligence, you are committing a serious sin. It's so serious that it has eternal consequences. The hell of fire. That's what it says at the end of verse 22. Why? Why would this have such serious consequences? Because murder of a person's name in God's eyes is just as punishable as murder of a person. Jesus reinforces that human lives are sacred and that to murder someone's reputation is the same as murdering their body crazy. Think about that. How often do we speak flippantly about other people? How often are we careless using our tongue and we use it to cut people down instead of building them up? As I was studying this sermon, I was reflecting on this in my own life and just recognizing how far short I fall, how much I need to repent for this. Lord, forgive me that I don't view heart murder as the same as murder. How quickly we become calloused and only hate 
the external sin. There won't be discussion groups tonight, but I urge you and plead with you, please ponder this on your way home tonight. Think about it in the car. Dwell on it. Ask the Lord, am I serious in the way that I address anger? Because it is murder in God's eyes. Ask the Lord to search you, to know you, to reveal any wayward path in your heart. Ask that the words of Paul in Ephesians 4.29 would be true of you, that you would let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Do your words give grace to those who hear? This heads us in the direction of our third point tonight, the solution to anger. The solution to anger. Well, what is the solution to anger? One word answer. Reconciliation. Reconciliation. We're going to spend the rest of our time tonight thinking through reconciliation with two different parties, man and God. Let's look back at our text, starting in verse 23. Jesus is saying, if you're offering your gift at the altar, and you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift and go be reconciled to him, and then come back and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser, with your adversary, while you're on your way to court, Because if you get to court, you will be handed over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you'll be put into prison and you will pay your due. If when you come to worship the Lord, you remember that you need reconciliation with another person, leave the service. (laughs) You ever think about that? Like you're about to take communion, you're like, I just need to leave because I need to be reconciled to someone. We don't take it that seriously, but we should. Jesus, in this passage, gives two different types of reconciliation to man. It's interesting. Look what he says in verse 23, at the very end, or excuse me, in the middle of 23. He says, remember that your brother has something against you. Okay, so reconciliation with a brother, someone who's close, friend, parent, sibling, literal brother. But then he also has another type of reconciliation that we need to consider And that is in verse 25. He says, come to terms quickly with your accuser. Okay, so we have, we need to be reconciled to our brothers, to those that we love, and to our accusers, to those that don't love us. (laughs) And probably we don't have love in our hearts for them as well. We may find ourselves needing to be reconciled to someone who is near to us or someone who doesn't like us. But notice that both of them require our action. Both of them require our moving towards this person. It's interesting, in verse 23, there's another thing to think about. It says that when you're offering your gift, if you remember that your brother has something against you. Think about that. If your brother has something against you, this isn't saying if you're about to offer your gift and you remember you've done something against someone else, You remember that you've been holding a grudge against this person. Jesus says, if you remember that someone has a grudge against you, go and make amends. Move towards this person. We have to actively search our hearts and think, is there anyone that thinks ill of me? Has there been anything that I've done that may have left someone offended? Is there anyone somewhere that still has beef with me for something that I did or said? If there is, we we must move towards reconciliation with them. That's what Jesus tells us. 
It's important to address the fact that if you are faithful to follow God, there will always be someone who thinks ill of you. Always will be. You see this in Jesus. There's a lot of people who hated Jesus. There's always going to be someone who disagrees with your motives, your convictions, and your actions. Always. If you are a faithful Christian. As, as Christians, why do we then care about this? Well, Paul helps remind us in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 21. He says this, We aim at what is honorable, not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of men. We desire to be honorable in the sight of our brother and our adversary. We do care about this. We aim to be reconciled to all of these men and women for any reason when it's within our power. But ultimately, you need to hear this, ultimately, even being reconciled to these people will leave you fall far short. The solution to the sin of anger is reconciliation with God. And the truth is, is that without reconciliation to God, ultimately none of this matters. It doesn't matter if you have great relationships. It doesn't matter if your enemies actually respect you instead of just hating you. Because both of these things will pass away very soon. But in 10,000 years from now, what's going to matter? It's whether or not you're reconciled to God. And that is why we have to put our emphasis, our priority upon this. This is what the Pharisees got so wrong in their time. They had so thickly layered this command with veneers that it no longer even looked like what Jesus had to say, what God had to say through his law. The way that the law was now said dealt strictly with the surface. It didn't even touch the root of this issue. And these people had skewed it so far from God's design that you could now maintain perfect standing with the law and the only standard was don't kill anyone. Pretty low bar to set. It's not one that accurately represents God's standard that he has towards all people. God is clear, according to 1 Samuel 15, 22, that when we worship, he is considerably less interested with our actions than he is with our heart. He says this, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. To listen is better than the fat of rams. Your best offering that you can ever offer to God is obedience. It's not giving your whole life away for show. It's not offering up the best that you have. It is trusting in Jesus, the high priest, the great one who has satisfied God's standard on our behalf. So how can we be reconciled to God? We must confess that we're sinners and we need a Savior that's beyond ourselves. that our measure of standing before God could never be attained on our own basis, on our own works. We need the, the deeds of another human being that was Jesus Christ, the perfect God-man, fully God, fully man, to live on our behalf and to reconcile us to the Father also on our behalf. We must believe that this sacrifice is sufficient for our sins and that Christ's death has satisfied the wrath of God for you. As you reflect on the heart murder you may have committed against your brother or your sister or your neighbor or your coworker. 
your mom, your dad, your friend, your enemy. Remember this. Christ was murdered upon the cross. He became sin, though he knew no sin. That in him, when we're joined to him by faith, we might become the righteousness of God. And this is the free gift. This is the offer that God gives you, even tonight. Even tonight, if you've rejected it for your entire life, God offers this same thing again to you. And that is why we have joy. And that is why we put our trust and faith in the giver of life. Would you trust him tonight? Let's pray. Lord, our sin is great. We lose sight of this because we pacify our hearts with false truths, saying that we're not that bad, we're better than the other person, at least we haven't killed anyone. God, but that's not what your standard is. Your standard is in the heart, Lord, and we know that you need to have our heart. We need to have a new heart be given to us by you, God, and that only comes through faith in Christ. And I ask, Lord, that you would stir hearts in this room tonight through the power of your word and your Holy Spirit, which is mighty, God, so mighty. Would you awaken our consciences to understand the truth, to know what is right, and to love it, Lord. As the psalmist says, how wonderful is your law, God. On it, night and day, do I delight. That is what we aspire to. Help us, God. We need you to help us. We pray all this in your son's precious name. Amen.